I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. We've been singing about our love, our relationship with the Lord, what He's done for us. A lot of those songs as we were singing, you should have seen your faces. You could look out and see resolve and praise, appreciation, tears. Good songs, good message in song. I want to ask you that question then again. How is your relationship with the Lord? I'd like to share a couple of illustrations as we begin. I'm holding in my hand a $20 bill. It's crisp. It's a real one, okay? By way of show of hands, how many would like to have an extra $20 bill this morning? All right, quite a few hands. I am going to give this away. If I took it and crumpled it up and did that to it, how many still would want this $20 bill? If I set it down and stepped on it after walking in from the parking lot, no, how many would still want this $20 bill? I could do this and hold it for a while. How many would still want the $20 bill? There is a truth, though, and if you don't mind, I will give this away. I was thinking, you know, who should I give this to? But I I, I would, if you don't mind, last week on Friday, somebody walked into the office and handed to you a check for $100 and said, put this towards the job seekers, and let's just give that $20 to the job seekers ministry. How's that? We can do that. But uh, let me ask you a question on this. How many times in your life, how many times do you feel that you've been dropped or crumpled, crunched up, dirtied up because of some choices you've made, some of the circumstances in your life, and you followed down that wrong pathway or something like that, and you feel, I am of no value to God. Folks, no matter how crumpled, no matter how dirty we get, you and I are still valuable to Him. In a sense, we are priceless, whether we are neat and folded and creased just right, or whether we get soiled, he still loves us because he sees value in us. Amen? Hang on to that truth as we look into this passage of Scripture. We're going to look into a passage of Scripture in verses 1 through 17 of John 21, dealing with the matter of when the Lord asks, do you love me? The week after Labor Day, for many of us, is so much a part of us and our makeup and anymore our culture, it sort of has been the week, unspokenly so, but it is the week in which we return to the busyness. We're getting back, the busyness, the work, the tasks. School now takes on a whole new emphasis. Oh, there was the orientations at college or at school, getting back started and everything. But once we get through Labor Day and Labor Day week, everything starts back up. In a sense, summer is over. Things now get busy. Keep the thoughts in mind. The $20 bill, still valuable. Back to the task at hand. As we come to John 21 and observe the circumstances, we find the Apostle Peter facing. 
Let's look at his life and notice as we look at Peter the situation he finds himself in. Every time I read this episode that we're going to study, I'm encouraged in my relationship with the Lord. And so ought you. As we sit here today, you ought to be encouraged through this passage of Scripture. Why so? Well, because of the lessons that we're going to see emerging out of this passage of Scripture. Before we even get to that This passage begins, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples on the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. But it starts out, after these things, recall briefly where Peter has been, what he has, where he has come from and where he has come to as we begin this episode. You need to go no further back than the Gospel of John chapter 1. The prologue begins in John's Gospel, chapter 1, talking about the Word of God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as soon as John has introduced that Jesus, the Word, has lived among us, and we beheld His glory, he then starts to talk about that ministry and the impact that Christ would have. As he began his public ministry and he walks through Galilee, he calls James and John to come and follow him. And then shortly thereafter, he's going to call Andrew, will be told by James and John, about Jesus. And Andrew immediately is going to find his brother, Simon. And he will say to him, we have found the Messiah. And when Simon comes to Christ, when he first meets him, Simon will hear the words from Jesus, Simon, son of Jonas, you shall be called Cephas. Aramaic for stone, we know it as Peter. He's a changed man. And there will be the episode thereafter where for a while then as he continues to follow Christ and becomes a disciple, Jesus on an occasion will walk up to Peter or up to the shore when Peter's out fishing, tell him to cast the net on the other side of the boat after he's fished all night. And in Luke chapter 5, we read then, as he does so, and he brings in this huge catch of fish, that he will foul down before the Lord and say to him, my Lord and my master, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And he will then follow in a committed way Jesus Christ. Halfway through his public ministry then of three years, reaching the halfway point in Luke 6, Jesus will call out of the 70 that came out of the few hundred that followed him, he will call 12 whom he will call Shalai or apostles. They will be his official spokesmen. And out of that group of 12, Peter will rise in ascendancy to be the leader. And he will experience things that no other man has ever had the privilege of experiencing. He'll see Jesus walk on the water. And when he does so, he says, Master, bid me come. And he will get out. An experienced fisherman doing something he never has done before. He will walk on the surface of the water in Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus will ask on one occasion, he will say, Who do people say that I am? And the apostles will respond and say, Some say that you are the resurrected now, John the Baptist, who was beheaded. Others will say that you are Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? 
And Simon will answer, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this, but God the Father has. And upon you, thou art Peter, and upon this rock shall the church be built, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The faith that Peter exhibited would be the faith upon which the church would be built now. Nothing would stand against that. In the next chapter we read, a few days later when they are up in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus takes James and John and Peter to the top of the mountain there, and there before their eyes he is transfigured into his pre-incarnate glory. Moses on one side, Elijah on the other. And Peter and the others say, let us build tents and let's just stay here. Peter, normal human being, got to experience things few men do. But he will also struggle with shortcomings and failures and discouragements. To the point where lesson number one, we're going to read as we just began, but notice in these first three verses... So we talk about three lessons that emerge from John 21 that encourage us. I want you to see where it starts out by telling us that faithful believers can fall. A man who walked on water said things no other man ever said, Thou art the Christ. Recognize that. Saw Jesus transfigured and experienced that and heard God the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Saw things, did things, heard things, no other human beings, but a rare few ever got to do and hear. He's going to stumble. He's going to fall. He's going to be valuable, and then that will happen to him. John 21, verses 1 through 3 Lesson one, faithful believers can fall. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two others of his disciples, seven in all. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught what? Nothing. So we look in this passage of Scripture, what led up? It says, after these things, what led up to this incident, this episode, this fishing venture? If you go back just a little bit, and I'm going to ask you to turn back with me. We said faithful believers can fall, and in order to understand it, you need to see that Peter has just, first of all, lived through a series of spiritual defeats. I'm going to call them spiritual miscalculations. And for that, I'm going to give list three of those. And I want you to turn back, if you would, with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 is the account in the upper room. The day before Jesus is crucified, at that Passover meal, that last supper, Jesus is with the apostles. And this will be the first in a series of spiritual defeats on the part of Peter, he is going to, first of all, wrongly assume that he is above spiritual defection. 
The leader of the twelve is above spiritual defection. I'm going to read in Luke 22, and if you'll follow with me, verse 31. As they're sitting around the meal, Jesus will speak, and he says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you... When once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Before we read any further, Jesus tells Peter something. As leader, Satan, above all the others, has wanted to take and stumble you. Jesus says, I have prayed. And somehow then through some action on the part of God, the heart of Peter was strengthened. But... Satan is relentless, and he would go after another leader of the band, and he did. Second in command, as it were, or second recognized as most trustworthy and worthy of following was the one who kept the bag, the one who handled the money, the treasurer. His name was Judas. He would be the one who would betray Christ. Peter is told this. He will say to Jesus in verse 33, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. There is nothing I wouldn't do for you. I will go with you. I will not leave you alone. I will not abandon you. I will not forsake you. I will go to prison. Matter of fact, I would die for you. Go a little further and to see a parallel account of this, you have to go with me to Matthew 26. It parallels that same account as Luke 22, but Matthew actually adds a few more details in the conversation. Peter will live through a series of spiritual defeats in that, first of all, he's going to wrongly assume, I would never defect. But he's also going to fail to heed the warnings given by the Lord. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31 Matthew 26, verse 31, something very interesting. And we read in verses 31 through 35, Matthew 26, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, quoting Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7, the inspired word of God, recognized as Scripture in his day as well, Jesus quotes that and says, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. That's the passage from the Old Testament. But after I have been raised, Jesus goes on to say, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows you shall deny me three times. Peter then responds, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then the other disciples will chime in and say the same thing. Peter responds when Jesus says, I'm afraid you will all deny me because the scriptures say this. Scriptures say things like, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he... Scripture offers lots of warnings about pride, about falling, about stumbling, about letting the Lord down. 
I can't tell you the number of times I've felt like Peter as I'm reading that in my devotions or as I'm hearing it preached and I'm thinking, it doesn't apply to me. Dave Burgraff, who do you think you are that you are above Scripture? Has it ever happened to you? Peter did. He failed to heed the warnings given by God. And there's a lot of them, folks. It's this thick. And he failed to heed that. But more than that, if you go with me to one last passage and then we'll stay in John 21. Mark 14, if you'll go there, please. Mark chapter 14. It all culminates in Mark 14, verse 66 through 72. I'll just read this. Jesus had warned, and then we start to read, he's arrested, he's in Caiaphas' house. In verse 66, Mark 14, he denied the Lord, though he boasted he never would. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, verse 67, Mark 14, and seeing Peter warming himself, he is standing over a charcoal, charcoal fire. John actually gives the term for it in John chapter 18 and says they were warming themselves by, very interesting Greek word, anthrakia, a charcoal fire. And as he's warming himself over that fire, Peter, with the crowd, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You too were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the porch. And the maid saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and to swear. And literally, he is cursing and swearing. I do not know this fellow you are talking about. And immediately a cock crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a cock crows twice, you shall deny me three times. And he began to weep. Peter has lived through a series of spiritual defeats, miscalculations. And Jesus is crucified. And the night turns into the next day. And the next morning, he is told by the women, the angel said he's risen. And John and Peter run to the tomb. He's not here. It is matters of hours, and Jesus comes and stands in their midst. And he says to them, peace be with you. Irene, things are all right. And they're right between us. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. He recommissions them. Peter just sort of melts into the background with the rest. The days turn into a week and it happens again. Only this time Thomas is with him. And the days go by. What should I be doing with my life? What should I be doing with this new message? He's alive. He is risen. And you've been in an Easter service when we've sung those songs and heard that. And it's just like, praise God, let me fly, let me do something. You feel that way. So then, after these things, Simon says, I'm going fishing. 
Faithful believers can fall, and in Peter's case, he had lived through a series of spiritual defeats and miscalculations, but now he reverts to a former lifestyle. He's doing something. He ought not to be wasting his life, as it were, at this point. There's more important things to do. But he had another task in mind, and that night they caught nothing. An interesting book that I've recommended. I've recommended it the last few years. I was in a ministry to college, and so I recommended it to students. It's called Don't Waste Your Life by Dr. John Piper. How many of you have read this? Several of you have. It's pretty poignant, but he says this. Let me read page 43. Don't waste your life. The opposite of wasting your life is living life by a single, God-exalting, soul-satisfying passion. The well-lived life must be God-exalting and soul-satisfying because that is why God created us. Isaiah 43, 7, I have created you for my glory. And passion is the right word. Or if you prefer, Piper says, you could use zeal or fervor, blood earnestness or ardor. Because God commands us to love him with all our heart. And Jesus reminds us that he will spew out, spit out lukewarm people from his mouth. Then he goes on to say, after he talks about, do you want your life to make a difference? You may not be sure that you want your life to make a difference. Maybe you don't care very much whether you make a lasting difference for the sake of something great. You just want people to like you. Or if people would just like being around you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife, a good, or a good husband and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and good friends, a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and, of course, no hell. If you could have all that, you would be satisfied. Piper says, that is a tragedy in the making. That is a wasted life. He goes on to say in page 45, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider the story from February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who, and then quote, took early retirement from their jobs in Northeast America five years ago when he was 59, she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, they play softball, and they collect shells. Then he ends the quote from Reader's Digest. Piper writes, at first when I read it, I thought this had to be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was their dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you will have to give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting seashells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my seashells. He goes on to say, that is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you and me to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, don't buy into it. Don't waste your life. Peter was wasting his life. 
faithful believers can fall. Now, frankly, there's nothing encouraging about that. So there's got to be more in the text. Let's look then in verses 4 on down and following through 17. 4 through 17. And there's a second lesson for us. Faithful believers can fall, but fallen believers can be forgiven. Fallen believers can be forgiven. Verses 4 and 5 tell me, first of all, that God would say to me and to you, I have not forgotten you. But when the day was now breaking, early in the morning, it's dawn. They've been fishing through the night. That was how fishermen did their business on the Sea of Galilee. We are now in the very earliest of morning hours, coming through the dark and into the earliest of light. Jesus stood on the beach. And there's a Greek construction here that we're not going to take time to take it apart. But John has a way of saying, and he did it when Jesus walked on the water in one episode. But at this point now, he is saying... One minute there was just the beach, and the next minute he was, in the word on means in the middle of it, right? There he stood. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, the term can be lads, boys, children, fellas, and it's a rhetorical question. You do not have any fish, do you? Frustrated, they answered him, No. Verses 6 and following now through 11, he's going to show his power on their behalf. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, John refers to himself this way, said to Peter, it's the Lord. This has happened once before And Peter actually experienced it once before when Jesus told him, cast the net, and he caught. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, his tunic, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed upon it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of a large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not yet torn. They're out fishing, catching nothing. Jesus says, cast the net on the right-hand side. And What kind of a net? Now, they often fished in that day with seine nets. Greek word saginae. But a seine net as we know them. About four, four and a half feet tall. Weighted on the bottom. Every few feet there would be a weight. And they would swing out arms from the side of a boat. And limbs, tree limbs. And to that could be attached then the net. And they would actually drop it behind the boat. Let the boat go through the water and catch the fish. And then you could enclose the net like that and you'd trap the fish. Or you could take two boats and pull it through the water. The nets might be as far as 50 feet apart from each other. And they would catch the fish that way. Or the way that Peter and Andrew probably fished. Amphibastron is the name of the, the net. And what it is, it's a, the net is, picture a lasso, lasso of about 20 feet in diameter on a stiff rope. And picture a net with a rope 
and then above it would be something like a bag. The best image you could think of would be like a parachute, okay, weighted on this rope. Very heavy weights because it's going to sink to the bottom. And what you would do is you would take the net and you would begin to throw it the way you would do a lariat or a lasso, and you would get this net twirling and it would form in this circular thing, and then you would cast it, and you would throw it out, and when it hits the water, then it sinks to the bottom. At least the rope portion does. The bag is like an umbrella laid on the water then, and it pulls down. Someone then dives into the water, and upon diving in then, he cinches the rope the way you would a noose. Peter's job as a fisherman, and when you do it for years, it's like a pearl diver, and he would be a diver. And when you dive like that, you're, you've got to pull, and it's a hard job. When you're underwater, takes a good amount of air, and you're also dragging in seaweed and everything else to cinch this thing. It takes a strong man, so strong that the others couldn't pull the net. Peter will do it alone. But he is dressed like the diver. He is dressed down to his swimming trunks. And what he will do then is, when John says, it's the Lord, he is going to throw his tunic on because you do not meet a teacher or a religious leader dressed the way Peter was as a swimmer. And he will make his way, run to shore ahead of the boat, swim ahead, and get there. The boat probably coming alongside, Peter doesn't wait. He's getting there. And he runs up, and he immediately is caught, and John records it. He is standing before the Lord above an anthracia, a charcoal fire only occurs two times in the New Testament. Once here and the other when he denied the Lord. And whether it be a photograph or whether it be a place that you drive by or whether it be a person you meet, whenever you see them, you remember, I wish it could be different. I wish it would have never happened. But he's caught up short and he's reminded, and he's standing now face to face before the Lord. Jesus says, I'm going to take care of you. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to ask him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord? Jesus came, took the bread, and gave them and the fish likewise. Intimate fellowship, a meal ready to serve. I want you to notice now, fallen believers can be forgiven. So when they had finished breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Now, you know how this works. When my mother or my dad, when they would say, David Lawrence Burgraff, come here, okay? Not good, okay? This was not going to go down well. Normally it was Dave or David, but when it came, David Lawrence Burgraff. Once in a while I'll hear my daughters and law and sons say that to my grandkids, and it's like, oh, you really ought to have grandpa's paddle, you know, the little feathered pillow thing. But uh, this is not going to be good for somebody. Simon, son of Jonas. It's his former name. Do you love me? More than these. 
The these has created a huge amount of controversy over the centuries. Do you love me more than these? And it can be understood in three ways. Do you love me more than you love these other men that you are with? It's wonderful to come to Colonial. And I come because I just love the folks. Do you love me more than these? We ought to be here because we love him. Amen? Or do you love me more than these things? The boat, the nets, the fish, what you've gone back to. And you and I have those kind of things in our lives. Oh, we don't want to get to the point where we call them loves, but they take our time. They occupy our life. Just struck me because oftentimes when Lucy and I lived in Florida, we have our home there. We've joked about it. We still have it, but it's in a golf course community. Not on a golf course itself, but in the golf course community. But every time we drive on a Sunday morning to church, we have to drive by a few of the fairways. And there every Sunday morning, you see out there worshiping the great Sunday morning God. You understand what I'm talking about? That's what occupies their time, all my neighbors. And, and I can feel that at times. I'm living up here and not having a chance to golf as much simply because I don't live on the golf course. So I walk out to the car and I say to the clubs, I love you too. No, I don't actually say that, but, you know. But it's real easy. Do you love these things? And in our lives, there's a lot of things, frankly, we love. Or the question can be, grammatically, Peter, do you love me more than other men claim that they love me? You said that once. Do you love me to the point where you would do anything? Even, I'm not asking you to die yet, Peter. I'm asking you to live for me. Here it goes. And by the way, do you know what I find most fascinating in this passage? He doesn't ever say, Peter, how come you didn't obey me? Peter, how come you didn't trust me? He doesn't say that. He asks him weirdly, do you love me? What's that all about? Because I guess it comes down to this. He sort of measures everything by our first love. Jesus said to him, Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he will say to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know I love you. But here's how it goes, actually. First time, Peter, do you agape, agapao, that kind of love. Do you agapao me? Do you love me with the kind of love expressed in a complete commitment, sold out commitment, the kind that God so loved the world that he gave his son. God commended his love toward us. 
Or the idea of husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself. Just unconditionally, do you love me? No strings attached. Peter responds, Lord, I phileo, different Greek word. I phileo, I have affection for you. I'll put it in our word. I like you a lot. Peter, do you agape, do you full committed love me? Lord, you know that I like you. The third time Jesus says to him, Peter, do you like me? And Peter's grieved. I do. Sometimes by our actions, maybe the wasted life, maybe the time not spent, maybe the other priorities, maybe for me, Dave, do you even really like me? He responds, and Peter gets it. And Jesus says to him, Peter. Well, after he says, you know all things. You know my heart. I'm not what I should be. Sometimes I'm all crumpled up. I'm still valuable. The Lord forgives him, and the Lord says to him, follow me, as you look down in verse 19. Fallen believers can be forgiven. And in verses 15 through 17, by the fact that he says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep, our third lesson, forgiven believers can be fruitful. You ought to be encouraged because faithful believers can fall, but fallen believers can be forgiven, and forgiven believers can again be fruitful. He's recommissioned again by Christ. Tend the sheep. Feed the sheep. I want to use you. And the next time you and I are going to see Peter, Peter is going to appear. As you turn your Bible over, you'll see him in Acts chapter 2. The days will go now, and the next time we read him, he's going to stand before the crowd of people and say, Ye men of Israel, you have crucified Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Then you'll see him just a few days later as he's going to walk into the temple precinct area in Acts chapter 5, and he's going to say to a man who's lame and cannot walk, Pick up your bed and rise in the name of Jesus. And he'll stand up. And the religious leaders and others will come, and they will take him to court, and they will try to silence Peter and the others, and Peter will be the one to respond and say, we ought to obey God rather than man. He's a changed man. He will not deny. He will put out everything now for his Lord. He will live for him. He loves him. And those are the songs we sang. No condemnation now I've dread. He is mine and I am his. Amazing love we sang. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. We sang that. It came from our heart and felt good, didn't it? So I ask you, as we go out and we serve the Lord, and summertime is over, and it's time to get back. Use that as a metaphor in our lives. It's time to get back in that relationship with the Lord. How's yours? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for encouraging us in the Word of God by revealing this heart-wrenching episode that Peter lived through. And when it was over, he would never be the same because he realized, my Lord loves me. I need to love him. 
unconditionally. Work in each of our hearts to that end, I pray in Jesus' name.